Well, I think the two ideas are the same. Damage control is about creating a turnaround. Learn modern marketing that you can use to grow your business in today's competitive landscape. This is Digital Marketing Masters with Matt and Carrie Rouse. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Digital Marketing Masters. And today, my guest is the one, the only, the Christ Communications expert, Jeff Hahn, with 30 years of experience in communications and public relations. He was raised on an Iowa farm, enlisted in the U.S. Air Force, graduated from UTSA, and spent 30 years working in some impressive roles, learning PR and crisis communications. But today, Jeff is the owner and principal of Tex Han Media, an Austin, Texas-based family of four distinct brands, and he concentrates on reputation protection and restoration for his clients. Jeff, it's great to have you on the show today. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about crisis communications and what you do? Yeah, you know, Matt, the the whole f- that phrase crisis communication has different meanings to people. I think, though, in the general marketing communications arena, people have often viewed it as a dark art, something that only a specialized few people have the capacity to do, manage and consult on. You know, I've been doing that work for a long time, and I've never felt comfortable that that's true. I, I just don't believe it. And so the exploration that I put together, it took me seven years to write Breaking Bad News. But what the, the theory or the through line of the book is that crisis communication is a system. And it's a system that if you use the tools that I've designed, also incorporated from other experts, If you use those tools in a sequence, you can navigate even the most difficult crisis. But that's the good news. It's a system to be learned, not an art form that could never be discerned. And so you, I think, maybe not specifically, but I think for the most part work with the food industry. Is that right? Yeah, that's half of our business. The other half is with the energy industry. So we think about food and energy in much the same way. They both exist at the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy. Uh, they are critical and essential to for people to thrive. And so they have a lot of connects, but a lot of food activity goes through our through our crisis communication at work. Yep. And so an example of a food crisis would be something like a recall or maybe something bad happened with somebody got sick or something like that. Is that the kind of crisis communications? that you would handle, or is there kind of other stuff I have, most people wouldn't really think of? Yeah, for sure. Recalls are quite routine. In fact, back in, I think the time I did a count, I think it was back in 2018, here in the U.S., there was about 1.2 recalls per day. So not uncommon. And you can see those through the USDA website or FDA websites. But there are other types of crisis that food companies go through. Lawsuits are an important and interesting crisis. They sometimes get played out over long periods of time, so the news cycles are different. But you can even have industrial accidents. There's a food processor manufacturer not too far away from where I work in Austin, and cleaning crew member had disabled some safety gear on a big industrial grinder, unfortunately and tragically got caught in that grinder and 
got chewed through it. So sometimes you'll have crisis events that involve fatality. And a lot of times, though, it's typically on the more of the food safety side. So food recalls are part of that, but the magnitude and intensity of those can be different, especially when it comes to things like bacteria. Let's take, for example, Bluebell ice cream. Bluebell ice cream had a listeria outbreak inside of its ice cream. Three people ate that ice cream and died. You have a pretty serious crisis on your hands at that point in time. Different from, say, Chipotle. Chipotle had a whole series of food, food poisoning cases, and those were uh, isolated. They just continue to happen in isolated ways. But they were along the lines of more like bacterial situations that made people sick but didn't necessarily kill them. So you just never know the, the type and variety. And sometimes the crisis are uh, much more about business and financial strategy. Companies make bets, mergers, acquisitions go south, etc. So you, you never quite know where you might end up in the spectrum. And with some clients, we even do consulting on events involving you know, social movements. We've warped our crisis consulting into new programs for clients who very interested and concerned with movements like Black Lives Matter. How do we adapt? What are the kinds of things that we can do to support that movement, adapt to it, etc.? So there's all kinds of interesting and what some people may view as to be disruptive activity that can fall into the camp of crisis communication. Right. And there's an excellent tip in there. Don't disable the safety equipment on your food processing. On your industrial grinders, yeah. You know, it's funny, not that this has anything to do with crisis communication, but when I was young, I worked in a restaurant and somebody would always take the guide off of like the slicer machine, you know, to slice meat and cheese and that kind of stuff. And then just like every day, we're telling the same guy over and over, you know, don't take the guard off the thing. Don't take the guard off the thing. This is way back in the day before people wore like chain mesh gloves and things like that at restaurants or Kevlar and stuff. And uh, yeah, he pretty much cut his hand off almost. So. Don't disable the safety equipment, people. Just saying. Please do not. Please do not. And you'll save having to have a crisis communications expert come to your company. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. One of the one of the interesting features of this kind of work is while you're grateful to be known and recognized as an authority in the industry, no one ever really wants to know you. Yeah, you don't want to be the you don't, you don't want to be the person that they have to call because nobody calls you unless there's a problem. Exactly. And uh, we get that a bit, honestly. You know, we do a lot of reputation management work and on the Internet side, right, like the SEO side and stuff. And, man, people just, you know, I mean, one of the worst things that I've seen in kind of small times reputation management, I mean, it's not small if it's your name, but for smaller companies is somebody with the same name as the owner of a company or a business will get in trouble somewhere else. So it's like case of mistaken identity. Yeah. And yeah, you're right. That calls for much more of an SEO type strategy. But you can also use media relations to help with that. What you need is some amplification help. And if in a, in a case like that, I would imagine taking on both a social media and a traditional media approach in order to increase the amplification of the correction required. <laughs> Hopefully that's not a, something that lasts too long. 
Yeah, a lot of times we're just like, sometimes you go ahead into it, you know, you say, you know, like a press release or something that says, you know, weird coincidence, you know, the owner of this local business had the same name as this person who was charged with a crime and they are not the same person, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. and then you kind of play it up like that and try to push all the news into your favor and push the other stuff off the bottom of the first page. Precisely. That's a content content suppression strategy. Yes, that's right. That old thing that they say that you hide all the bodies on page two of Google because nobody ever looks there. <laughs> right on. Yeah. What is the what's the fall off page one to page two? Is it like 95 percent? It depends what it is. It depends on device and stuff like that and search intent. But I think if you average everything together, it's something like that. It's it's in the 90s anyway. And there's also I mean, there's like page one used to have, you know, one ad and 10 links on it. And nowadays page one has five to seven ads plus, you know, 10 links and five YouTube links and three map links and a button to get more maps and a scroll button to get more products off the side. And so page one now has 40 links on it, you know. So, I mean, it's it's you can't really compare what it is now and what it used to be because who knows what people are clicking on half the time these days. And I mean, and I do SEO for a living and it's hard enough for us. We just try and like just go after where the traffic is and, you know, we, we don't care where it is. Just get it. Yep. In some respects, we're all chasing eyeballs, aren't we? That's right. Get the right message in front of the right person at the right time. That's all that really matters. Yeah. And you know what? That's That idea is exactly it tracks with part of the model that I put together in Breaking Bad News. Message, messenger, and method of delivery. In that order, make that work and you've got yourself a winning strategy. Right. And now I've heard some interesting ones and we can get back to talk about kind of communication tools and stuff in a minute. But there's been some pretty big companies that have had kind of some things go wrong that really had nothing to do with them. I remember a recent one and I man, I, I cannot remember the name of the show it was on, but this popular soap opera show, one of the main characters died because they left their crock pot on overnight and it burned their house down or something. And killed them. And then the company that made that crock pot saw their sales drop like 60% overnight. And like that is a crisis that you don't see coming, right? And it's not even your fault. If I remember correctly, what they did is they put out a big kind of media blitz that even though they don't think it's possible that that could have happened with their product in the first place, what they did is they put a, a timer on it that would like a shutoff timer on it. And then they kind of turned it around to be a positive. Is that kind of the strategy that you think, you know, well, I, obviously it's not going to work for everything because it's going to depend on what it is. But is there a lot of cases where you can turn it around as a positive or is it pretty much all damage control? Well, I think the two ideas are the same. Damage control is about creating a turnaround. My philosophy has always been if you're confronted with just two options, two doors to walk through, start looking for a window. And in the case that you just mentioned, where the company actually engineered additional safety into its product, that's a fairly extraordinary um, set of circumstances where that happens and voluntarily new engineering is required. I think in that case, though, it sounded like they did a pretty good job of very quickly moving the narrative away from 
a crockpot burned this guy's house down to our crockpots are safe and here's how to use them and here's a video explaining and this is proper technique and usage, etc. So the challenge isn't necessarily to reimagine a product or even a brand. It's in fact to control the narrative in the news cycle because that news cycle is usually pretty fast. Recall that will affect a food product, for example, typically you'll find its way into the news cycle for one 24-hour period. Then it's gone. It's replaced by the next crisis. Right. It's hard to imagine how any of that is really useful. Like, is everybody really going to see that that uses that product in 24 hours? I'm just saying that's probably not the best recall method. But the news cycles, have you seen, I, I mean, obviously you've seen some of the shortening of the news cycle, but because of things like social media and stuff like that, now is the time from like someone spots a crisis to the time that they have to act? Is that a much shorter time period now than it has been traditionally? It is. It's a great question, too. The shape of the news cycle has dramatically reformatted the requirement for crisis communication. It used to be, you know, when I first started in uh, this work, we might take a full day just to get a story together to respond to a particular issue or crisis. Today, you have two hours. In two hours, you need to have a message that can control the narrative about what has happened or what has been reportedly happening that's got your brand or your product in a vice grip. Is that two-hour period? I, I, I have seen a lot of brands kind of get crucified on you know, spots like social media, spots like Twitter and stuff like that for no, for having no response, right? And then people just start bandwagoning on top of them saying, oh, they're not going to say anything because that, you know, they're guilty or whatever, right? Is there also, because of kind of, and this might might be a more recent thing, so it may not have, have had as, as much time to impact companies yet, but the fragmentation of groups on social media to platforms, you're seeing, you know, like far right groups that kind of moved to like Parler away from Facebook and Twitter and then Parler shut down and they went to other places like MeWe and stuff like that. And you're getting like a pretty big kind of left wing news and journalist movement from Twitter and LinkedIn to something like Clubhouse. It's pretty new. So you're kind of getting different demographic groups on different platforms, which must make it nearly impossible to monitor all of these areas, right? Yeah, very tough to monitor. And as you know, in your business, that's finding where the eyeballs are is just a never ending chase. I think for brands that are in crisis, you have to make a pretty fast analysis of who it is you need to speak to about the issue at hand and simply focus on those few stakeholders. And by the way, I would say one of the most interesting and important stakeholders for any brand is the employee population. They're your first line ambassadors, and they're often overlooked. If you can possibly match your strategy up to a stakeholder rotation, then the best way to communicate your position and control that narrative is to communicate to employees first, then to your stakeholders through the media. I think about media as a channel and news reporting as a channel as as much or more than I think of them as a stakeholder. So the 
supreme challenge is simply to not to try to hit everyone. Because one of the things that we, as we talk about all the different platforms, we know is that they feed off of each other. Move your message into some of the bigger platforms into what we might refer to as mainstream to match up to your stakeholders you care about most. And those messages will find their way into the uh, more marginal platforms. Do you see companies building out these kind of crisis communication channels in advance? Like they're saying, here's some strategies that we're going to use if something happens in you know, this department or this department. And these are the outlets we want to contact. These are the employees. This is how we reach our, you know, stockholders or our board. And do you see that kind of crisis planning going on in more businesses nowadays? The, the better ones and the better run ones know that it, it's not if a crisis is going to happen, it's when. So they have provisions like you've just suggested in place. But if I'm honest, the, the general answer is no, I don't. In fact, it's almost makes you want to tear your hair out at certain times. Like, y'all, you, you've got to get ready for this kind of situation. And putting it off or pretending that it's never going to happen is a really bad idea. Yes, it's a lot like buying insurance. You hope you never have to use it. But on that one day when you least expect it, here it is. And so preparation is absolutely essential. What I have found, though, is that preparation is typically done a lot of effort is put into the wrong things. And I'll give you a good example. Growing up in the profession, we've done hundreds and hundreds of crisis communication plans for brands. And those plans sit in three ring binders never to be looked at once they're finally agreed to. Instead of doing that and putting effort into creating three ring binders nobody ever looks at again, the most important thing that you can do is invest time in the creation of your rapid response team. And a rapid response team needs to have practice. That's where the real important investment lies is forming a rapid response team and allowing it to practice given certain scenarios. These, are, these can be tabletop exercises. They can be a little bit more assertive than that, even include responding to mock media. But rapid response team formation, assembly, and then capability, those are the things that are most important. Three ring binders are not. Right. What size of a company do you think, the, like how big does a company really need to be before they're assembling kind of a crisis response team of, you know, more than one? Yeah, good question. There's really no hard and fast rules, as you can imagine. It, the, your, your brand and product exposure dictates a lot. If you're an ingredient, for example, in the food industry, your exposure is pretty small because you're a supplier in a bigger chain. That means then I think you can get bigger, but there's going to be a moment in time. I'd say, you know, if you're just use a random number, but if you're a $10 million a year company, you should have a plan. Below that, you should at least have a single person who's going to be the, the designated one to manage a crisis if one occurs. Somebody's going to need to step up when the spaghetti hits the fan, so to speak. Right. Does that usually fall into the marketing department or is it kind of a upper management slash CMO kind of area? It depends. You know, a lot of times, especially in smaller brands, it's the CEO that people want to hear from. 
And marketing folks often have a difficult time in the crisis realm because they're so overwhelmed by the unnaturalness of it all. It's not about selling product. It's not about taking advantage of the time. It's about protecting a brand. And my marketing friends are wonderful at building brands. They have no experience in managing the damage of a brand. And so their instincts just aren't going to serve them well. Oftentimes, CEOs are exposed to conversations about risk and strategy. So they have a little bit better grasp of the trade-offs of the conversations and the fact that the perfect is the enemy of the good. Let me explain that a little bit more. I have been at the table when CMOs have been designated, okay, you're going to be the head crisis person. And they, quite frankly, are ill-equipped to allow for good enough to carry the day because speed is more important than accuracy. What you need to be is controlling a narrative with as much good content and not waiting and waiting and waiting for something to be perfected. And so that's a really difficult mindset change if we're used to controlling every aspect of a brand. Yeah, when you're controlling creative and stuff, it can be you're always trying to get it right before it goes out the door. But, I, you know, honestly, I think the brands who do the best with building relationships through social media and stuff like that are the ones that, that seem to be kind of off the cuff. You know, they're the the Wendy's and the Burger Kings who are throwing out stuff all the time that's not planned ahead. That's obviously has to be come up with pretty quickly, you know, when they see other stuff happening. They always seem to do better at that kind of speed related, you know, social marketing. I think you're right. I think it's because they're used to being in conversation. And that's a really that takes practice, doesn't it? Yeah, you know, I always I like I like to remember the there's there's a crisis episode of the show The Office. I don't know if you remember that one specifically when someone had printed something inappropriate on the on the watermark on the paper that was sent out to like schools and businesses and stuff. And everybody's in crisis mode answering the phones and all this and then they're going to call a press conference and you know, it just goes toward terribly and and the whole thing just, you know, kind of falls apart. And they definitely did not have a crisis plan. <laughs> I remember that episode. I think Michael Scott gets up and says at the press conference, that concludes my statement and I will not be taking any questions. Are there any questions? <laughs> right. <laughs> he, just gets, he just gets destroyed. <laughs> yeah, it's funny nowadays. It seems like, you know, 20 years ago, people, companies would be like, okay, we've released a statement to the media kind of thing. And nowadays, there needs to be like question and answer on social media. You know, there needs to be like a little bit of back and forth and answering some questions and responding to people who are angry and people who are bandwagoning. And, you know, you get a lot of people that will just, a lot of keyboard warriors out there will jump on top of anything. I mean, it's, it can be a pretty sensitive situation. Oh, for sure. And you're right. You know, that the idea of, well, issue a statement to the press, that's as old almost as dinosaurs now in this profession. And it's almost laughable. But you know what? That's still very much the mindset of people who, because they don't have practice in this space, issue a press release, even using the idea of a press release. I mean, a press release was invented like 110 years ago. And it's still a tool that people say, oh, just use that and everything is fixed. No, 
No, it's good to set a narrative. It's good to get something in writing out and amplified, but it's not crisis management um, and not good crisis communication engagement. Yeah, it's also pretty one-sided. It's like, I'm going to use my megaphone to tell everyone why they're wrong about us. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And that's a really interesting point because asymmetrical communication on these is an old school thought. Now you definitely have to have symmetrical communications, symmetrical engagement. Nice. So I have another question. We've talked about this on our podcast from time to time over the last couple of years. And, uh, the big thing that we've seen in, like, I guess now people call it cancel culture, right? But it's the boycott idea. We're going to boycott this place. We're going to boycott this thing. But it almost always turns out that the boycott drives sales up. And I wondered if your experience with, you know, companies that have been boycotted, in quotes, right? If, you know, that has been the case that they've been able to turn that around and use it to their advantage. Well, Yes, I've got experience with that, a particular client in my head as you talk about that. But I would suggest to you that it's not because the company has done anything peculiarly smart. Instead, consumers react to cancel culture type events by assuming that a product or a brand might be less accessible in the hours or days or months after an event. That assumption instantiates a feeling of scarcity. And so product demand can, you can almost be assured that product demand goes up because people feel like the brand's under attack, the product is under attack, it's going away. I'm going to get it before it goes away. It's that that scarcity phenomenon is well documented by a social scientist named Robert Cialdini. And Cialdini and his just amazingly good work, he wrote the book, Influence, the Art of Persuasion. Fantastic thinking about the idea of scarcity and how it drives human behavior. It's interesting as I'm reading that book right now, like I'm on like page 10 oh, or something. Good for you. <laughs> You'll love that. I, I read that book, maybe it was 10 years ago. And as soon as I was finished, I threw it down on the table and said, why didn't somebody tell me? <laughs> It's so good and such an important part of the arsenal for a good communicator these days. Thank goodness Dr. Cialdini came around because he's made an enormous contribution to our field. Yeah. So if somebody in a company, you know, is maybe trying to see the writing on the wall that eventually they're going to have a crisis or they want to start planning for crisis communication, what is the first step for them to take? Yeah, really good. Well, I would say in my experience where crisis communication breaks down the most is that a rapid response team has not been formed, nor have they had any practice or time together. So first step for me always is let's populate the rapid response table with the right players. Following that, the rapid response team can have an in-depth conversation about the five to seven things that are most likely to go wrong. And once you have a grip on that conversation, you can actually begin to anticipate how you might communicate if those scenarios do come true. And that's the two-step process that makes the most sense to me. Even if you can't anticipate an incident, the most important thing is that your rapid response team has the ability to know how to assemble, know how to have a conversation, and move through a difficult challenge 
in the proper steps. If you can get that right, boy, you've got you're 90% better than most brands. Nice. So if somebody wants to reach out to you to find out more, what's the best way for them to contact you? Yeah, thanks. Well, the book Breaking Bad News is at breakingbadnewsbook.com. So you can find it there. And I've got a special promotion right now. So it'll just cost you the postage stamp to get it. And that'll last until the reserve copies have run out. But you can also contact me through that website. And my email and contact information is right there on breakingbadnewsbook.com. And I'd love to chat anybody up who's interested in this subject. Sounds good. Jeff, thanks for being on the show. I appreciate you coming on to talk about crisis communications. Thanks, Matt. I enjoyed being with you. And Jeff Hahn is the author of Breaking Bad News, 12 Essential Crisis Communication Tools. And you can get his information, contact him at breakingbadnewsbook.com. You can also check, we'll have the link in the show notes on your favorite podcast player in that little box at the bottom that nobody ever reads. Or you can find the other show notes at hookseo.com slash podcast. And Jeff, thanks again for being on the show. Been a real pleasure. Thanks, Matt. This has been Digital Marketing Masters with Matt and Carrie Rouse. For notes and a transcript of this episode, go to hookseo.com forward slash podcast. Join us next week as we dive into more tips and ideas to grow your business. Digital Marketing Masters is brought to you by Hook SEO Digital Marketing. Our show is produced by Matthew Rouse and Scott Burson. Mixed and edited by Silent Outburst Productions. I'm your announcer, Daniel D. Craig. We would love to hear your thoughts. Please leave us an honest review with your podcast provider. Your reviews help us help more business leaders just like you.